0: This is Tom Lee, Editor-in-Chief for NEJM Catalyst, and we're talking today with Larry Ollier, a Surgeon-in-Chief at Texas Children's Hospital and the leader of the biggest pediatric institution in the country uh, in one of the hottest spots uh, from the perspective of COVID-19. Uh, Larry is someone who I've known for several years. He's a terrific leader who, clinically and in healthcare delivery, he has dealt with some of the toughest problems. He has the, uh, uh, you know, willingness to plunge into difficult issues and the patience to work through them uh, in detail clinically and also uh, and from the point of view of being a manager. Uh, he agreed to talk with us today about the experience of his institution with the challenges uh, created by COVID-19 over the last several months. Um, Larry, for listeners who might not be familiar with Texas Children's, can you give a very quick summary of the institution and the population it serves? Absolutely. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Um,
1: So Texas Children's Uh, as some of our listeners may be aware, is the largest freestanding children's hospital in the country. We're actually a a grouping of three hospitals in the greater Houston metro area. But we comprise about 11 million square feet um, with about 4.5 to 5 million patient encounters a year. Um, We number about 950 licensed beds, uh, which is is close to double uh, the next biggest children's hospital. Uh, we perform about 40,000 surgeries a year here on children and have the largest children's health plan in the country and the largest primary care pediatric network. But I would say, to put that in perspective, as big as we are, we're in the middle of the of the biggest medical center in this country, the Texas Medical Center, that, that really comprises almost 20 uh, hospitals with 100,000 employees and probably something on the order of 10,000 beds in this system. Here. So we're surrounded by a, a massive medical complex
0: uh, here in Houston. Well, my sense of um, Houston and, um, in general is that there are so many issues for which the word biggest and most come up, uh, but it is one of the most diverse cities in the country. It has um, a very high uninsured rate. It is one of the biggest cities in the country, of course, um, and it has been one of the hottest spots. Uh, My sense has been that the stresses related to COVID have been tremendous, but they have never actually quite overwhelmed the delivery system uh, of Texas Medical Center. Uh, But that's for the whole medical center, and and most of the attention has been on adult medicine. How how has COVID gone for Texas Children's?
1: Well, Tom, um, um, I think it's helpful to get some perspective on that. As you mentioned, you know, there are many challenges here. We're an in incredibly diverse city, you know, perhaps uh, the most diverse city in the country by 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 many metrics with a very large uninsured uh, population. Um, you do mention that the surge here was, was substantial, perhaps second only to, to New York City and, and Miami, perhaps. And in the face of that, it, it really has not overwhelmed our system. But I, but I would say that we're fortunate that we did not face the surge as early as New York City did. The delay in it here um, really allowed us time to ramp up our testing capabilities and our supply lines for PPE. You know, as, as New York City was facing this surge in uh, March and April and into May, um, in March, we went into essentially a lockdown uh, here in the city. Um, by governor's mandate, there were no elected procedures performed at hospitals. Um, and it was interesting, into early April, it appeared that we were undergoing a surge. Um, mild, in retrospect, very mild. But at that time, uh, given how well it was being managed, the governor allowed elected procedures to resume in the city, and he began slowly reopening the economy, businesses, and, and the like. Um, unfortunately, after that slow reopening into May and June cases and, and hospitalizations uh, began to rapidly increase, peaking in early July, and to give you some perspective on this, um, uh, the, the numbers just shot through the roof. Um, and it, it was fascinating uh, to see what what the response was. Um, you know, the adult hospitals into June and early July were, were filling up um, 170,000 positive cases thus far, and, and on the order of 23,000 patients that have been hospitalized here in, just in the Texas Medical Center, with about 2,000 deaths. But through this period of time, uh, despite the, the overwhelming numbers, elected cases were still being done in hospitals throughout the medical center. Um, uh, ICU bed capacity uh, had been expanded early in the phase of this in TMC um, getting us probably around that time uh, at the peak of the surge in July about 2200 beds and although we were very close throughout the medical center, particularly the adult system, to filling up our bed capacity only about one third of those cases were COVID positive positive. and I think it's very important to reflect upon that despite the huge number of cases and the ICUs filling up, two-thirds were non-COVID. It was very important for these hospitals to continue their elective procedures, frankly, just for their physical health. But what they were able to do as different hospitals filled up is to selectively dial back their elective care to create more COVID capacity. Um, And it was fascinating to see the nuance in managing this while still trying to carry on daily activities here. Frankly, I I don't know that any other place has accomplished it in that same way, managing a massive surge. But if you step back, I think it's important to point out that the Children's Hospital was in many ways exactly the opposite. Throughout the entire COVID crisis, um, our census plummeted. You know, uh, at the peak of this, we were probably about 50% or 33%, maybe, capacity at certain points. Our surgeries fell from about an average of 150 to 190 a day uh, pre-COVID, to 20 urgent cases a day when we were locked down, and still today on the order of only 70 to 80%. COVID in a children's hospital really is a whole different beast. You know, even at the peak of the surge, we rarely had more than 30 COVID-positive patients in our system. And most of those kids had COVID uh, as an incidental diagnosis. They were here for something else, but they were found to be COVID-positive on testing. Our biggest issue is families stay away. Um, it's getting better, but very, very slowly. You know, Many families are still scared that they will contract COVID uh, or their kids will when they visit the hospital here. Many are still very put off by the restricted visitor policy. Uh, We don't allow both families uh, to be with the child at the same time. They can change off, but many families don't want to undergo large elective procedures unless both mom and dad or both caregivers can be at the bedside the whole time. And we still have a problem with positive tests on patients that exclude them from elective care. Since this began, we canceled over 1,400 uh, surgical cases because of testing. Um, so this continues to have a very negative um, financial effect uh, on us here at the hospital. Very negative
0: Now, now you know, I you know why well, I think this is so interesting I mean, that the institutions at Texas Medical Center were able to cooperate. I mean, I think if you go back a few years, the main form of cooperation was uh, the parking lot and uh, the orchestra that uh, people participated in, uh, people used to joke about. But I do know that the organizations worked together amazingly well in this crisis. Did Texas Children's actually offer to use or use any of its capacity for non-pediatric patients as the volume rose in the, uh, in a, on the adult medicine side?
1: Well, the simple answer is yes. Um, and to your point about cooperation in the Texas Medical Center, um, the, that has historically not been a thing here. The TMC really does coordinate the parking, as you point out, and really the only other thing that the hospitals cooperate on uh, is laundry. There's a laundry co- cooperative. Other than that, by and large, these are independent, independently functioning institutions that, that don't do much together. As COVID came on, I think there was a great deal of concern that, that individual hospitals would be affected disproportionately. And there was a great deal of concern about how to get the word out to the public in a, in a thoughtful fashion. That is, we needed people to wear masks, we needed people to socially distance, but we didn't want to scare them away from the hospital. And it was not an easy thing to do. Um, I think we overshot one way or the other at various points but the CEOs had a regular call um, daily during the peak of this to talk through challenges Um, as places started to fill up and as there was concern that we would become overwhelmed the CEO of Texas Children's did have us prepare to begin bringing adult patients on board COVID-positive and COVID-negative to create capacity. Um, As it it turned out, we did accept quite a few adult patients, but a relatively small number on an average daily census, probably no more than 10 to 20 uh, in-house at one time. But most of those we took from outlying smaller hospitals that were easily and rapidly overwhelmed. With the exception of the county hospital here which did become overwhelmed there are two in the the county hospital system um, with the exception of those we didn't take transfers from any of the other tmc institutions they were able to manage uh their census again by by very carefully dialing down elective volume
0: when necessary well that kind of flexibility though must have uh given uh some real confidence to the leaders of texas medical center that they could that they could handle uh, fluxes. Now, within the pediatric world, uh, uh, as I'm sure you know well, there are these very rare inflammatory complications of COVID, uh, which I think would probably be daunting for uh, for pediatric providers who are, you know, far away from the kind of expertise that you have at Texas Children's. Did systems develop that would get those patients to clinicians who were confident taking care of them, as you have at your institution? Yeah, so
1: you make a very good point. The MISC syndrome in these children, you know, post-COVID, after they were initially exposed, uh, multisystem inflammatory syndrome, we saw um, a good number of those children, and and there were quite a few that were quite ill. the interesting thing about this is we're already in a, in a region where most of those critically ill children come to us, um, in any case. Um, there are very few of those that end up at other institutions um, here. But, but, you know, there wasn't, I guess, to get back to the point, we never felt, nor did any other institutions, I think, feel that there was a, a surge, a real surge, in sick kids secondary to COVID. Again, we, we did have some kids here who were sick from COVID, including, you know, several who required ECMO um, to sustain them. But but the pediatric environment has not been severely affected in terms of COVID-positive illnesses um, the, the, the same way that the adult environment has. It's something that is was easy for us to manage on some level. Um, uh, and I think, you know, one of the lessons we've learned, whether it's this ongoing pandemic or it's, it's another virus that comes through, I think that we need to be careful about allowing elective and semi-elective pediatric care to continue largely in an uninterrupted fashion. You know, what we're still seeing right now um, as a result of COVID is delayed presentation of many, many different pediatric conditions, like cancer. You know the number of children that we are seeing with cancer has dropped substantially, and it's not because their cancers have gone away. It's because parents are not investigating some of these subtle findings that they that they notice in their children. They're still scared to come in, and so the children that we're getting have more advanced
0: stage cancer. Well, that that brings up uh, you know the, uh, something I wanted to ask you about the the permanent lessons learned about the redesign of care to give access. Um, uh, to to patients uh, with or without COVID. Uh, in the adult medicine side of things, uh, that's what we're, we're uh, struggling to figure out. Like uh, we did a lot more telemedicine on the adult side and we're figuring out, um, you know, how much to preserve, how to integrate telemedicine. Um, my guess is, is that, that um, there was... Real redesign of care to to meet patients' needs, um, even if it was not completely successful in, in engaging patients. Um, how is Texas Medical Center changing the way it thinks about care delivery?
1: Well, you, you mentioned the obvious, and that's you know, telemedicine. I, you know, I think many of us um, physicians always felt telemedicine had a much bigger role to play, um, and and clearly it was critical during the. The height of the pandemic, many families uh, felt that was the only safe way to access care. That was, of course, facilitated by the payors um, also agreeing um, to pay. I think you can already see the the payors dialing back um, their willingness to pay at certain rates for these type of virtual visits, and I think that will determine how lasting uh, a component telemedicine is. I think. We clearly are going to have this as a as a key part of our armamentarium to see patients in the future. Um, but we've already seen it drop off, um, more so, frankly, here than we would have expected. Um, I, I think the real question is, what is telemedicine best for? And I think it is, it's going to be different for each specialty, whether or not it's acceptable for a new patient or just a follow-up patient. Certainly one thing that we've seen, it's very difficult in ENT. It's very difficult in ENT. You know, you can't see in the nose or the the ears easily. Uh, There are some innovative solutions that may uh, help with that. But that's been a big issue for us. You know, ENT is a major fiscal driver as far as elective care goes. Uh, Over 20% of our surgical volume is ENT, and that has been the slowest to recover for us, and that is causing some financial challenges uh, for us. But there's no question that telemedicine will be key. But partly because of that, I think many hospitals now, pediatric and adult, are having to evaluate their cost structure for their clinic environment. You know, if you can do 20%, 30% of these cases by virtual medicine, you don't need the same clinic personnel or, frankly, the same real estate. So how is that staffed optimally? Can you shift those staff that those staff to virtually room these
0: telemedicine visits. There are still technical challenges, I think, around telemedicine. I will well, your say point too, bring you you bring up an important message, which is that uh, uh, a, a very segmented approach to thinking about how we redesign redesign care uh, is is critical to to be effective. Uh, it, the the real unit of analysis isn't really telemedicine, but it's how do we meet the needs of children with ENT issues and and adults with d issues and so on. Um, well, let me just ask uh, a last question. Is is there anything that you think that you and your colleagues would do differently next time, if there is a, a, a fall surge, as we all fear? Well,
1: um, you know, I, I think if, as we talk about the fall surge, I, I, I think we're fortunate now that we're still very much in the throes of, of COVID. I mean, we we still have a significant number of hospitalizations throughout the medical center here every day, and so we are we are prepared for a fall surge. I, I doubt even in the face of a new surge it will be as bad as it was in late July, knock on, or in early July, knock on wood, um, but, but we're well prepared with screening of patients, employees, uh, of physicians every day. Um, our testing capacity has never been better. Our PPE supply uh, in country has never been better. So I don't think there's anything we're gonna do differently now. I think you can ask what will change perhaps when there's a vaccine and perhaps in the future we face another pandemic. I think that perhaps screening coming into hospitals is here to stay. I can see that that, that would, would be something that would be a lasting effect of COVID, ensuring that patients, that come, patients and families that come into the hospitals are, are not ill. Um, and I'm curious to see what our new masking policy is moving forward. It's clear that masks work, and you can argue that if they work for COVID, they work for flu as well. Um, and it may be that some modification of our of our current universal masking policy is something that's
0: wise to continue in some fashion. Well, thanks so much, Larry. I mean, I think, that, you know, if I were to, like, look for three takeaways on how uh, that shaped how things went I would say you had the advantage of not being the first to have an overwhelming surge so you had a little more time to learn and think and stock up and get ready Uh, uh, the second is that you because you're so big and important in Texas uh, you had a lot of the pipes laid for real integration with uh, uh, pediatric providers in a very broad region and then, the very pleasant surprise is that at Texas Medical Center, uh, these organizations that haven't necessarily cooperated and integrated um, in, in, in major ways clinically, uh, leadership and the clinicians rose to the occasion. And they, uh, they, they worked together, and they were uh, to provide some flexibility to, to meet, meet the needs of your community. Uh, a reasonable summary?
1: I think it's a very reasonable summary, and I guess I would say in conclusion that we here um, in the Texas Medical Center, you know, quite frankly, are proud of the way we, we handle this substantial surge. Uh, and I think it's, a, it's an example of, of how we need to come together in these most trying of times.
0: Well, it's a great story, and I'm uh, sure there are going to be, you know, additional chapters, and look forward to checking in with you on them. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Tom.